Okay, we're back. It's across the tracks. We are back. Yes, we are back. It has been a minute or two since we were last here. Busy, busy, busy. Uh, life takes over sometimes. You get busy, but uh, we managed to find our way back. And so we're here tonight for another exciting uh, hour or so, uh, 45 minutes, give or take, of the Across the Tracks podcast. As usual, I am Wayne. And I'm Steve. Two small town guys from Elizabethtown, Kentucky, <laughs> a.k.a. E-Town. That's where we from. That's where we from. <laughs> <laughs> so what's been going on, brother? Oh, man, I tell you, uh, it's been a busy, busy uh, first part of the year. And, uh, you know, work kicking off, keeping me busy, traveling. You got a next. You got a dog going on. Yeah, there's door. a dog What's... right outside. Cause <laughs> the, the neighbor's dog. She got one of them yapping dogs. <laughs> and uh, I don't care, man. If the wind blows, that dog starts barking, man. So something has got the dog excited because you can hear it. Yeah, <laughs> so, I can hear it. So uh, it's because I'm down in the basement in the in the in the guest room, and so their house is right next door, and the dog is in the backyard. So. Some little yapping dog, man, and uh, I'd go out and cut the grass. As soon as I turned on the lawnmower, the dog would start barking. I mean, I could <laughs> weed and the dog's barking. So, so that's what you hear in the background. Yeah, yeah. The, the neighbor's dog. So I think he's calmed down a little bit now. But uh, beyond that, uh, life is good. Can't complain. Uh, you know, just keeping it moving day by day. How about yourself? No, man. Everything's the same with me. You know, just uh, retired. Uh, still doing my school board thing, uh, doing a fraternity thing as well. So uh, just recently I uh, uh, became the president of the school board. So that's uh, that's something that's that's different. Other than that, the fraternity, about every year, the fraternity that I'm in, uh, Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity, has intake or membership training. Right. And I'm the the chairman of the MTA membership training academy and so i have to uh deal with people applying applications and grading applications and interviews and all that kind of stuff so it's a busy time for me the weekends kind of get busy but yeah other than that you know trying to beat the cold and can't wait until summer and spring comes around where i can get out and start cutting grass and just get out so yeah. That's where I'm at, man. Bring it on. Bring on the warmth. Um, I'm, I'm headed to, to the desert this weekend, going to Phoenix on business for a week. So looking forward to that, to get out of this snow and cold. <laughs> so, And the dog. So, <laughs> so we're, we're have to muddle through this tonight because uh, the dogs, I think, is going to he's going to yap for a while. So, uh, so we'll get through it. We'll muddle through, get through. So it's all good. Not as if we had a big, uh, elaborate $80,000 studio in which we broadcast in. Nah, yeah. we're, we're, you we're broadcast bro- in your basement, <laughs> and I broadcast from my closet. <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm in the guest room of the house, so uh, and the neighbor's dog is right in the backyard. So I'm down in the basement in the guest room, and the dog is like, I mean, I open my window. I can see into their backyard, so that's how close we are. Okay. So that's why the dog feels like it's right here in the room with me. So, But it's all good. We will get through it. We'll get through with it. So what do you got on your mind this evening? Well, there's a couple of things here. Um, I just finished watching a documentary on the assassination of Malcolm X. One of my uh, former colleague's son who teaches at my high school that I taught at for 30 years, we go to breakfast every Friday or so. And he had asked me if I had seen the assassination of Malcolm X because he, he's a history teacher, too. He's you know quite a bit younger than I am. So I happened to uh, watch that and just was fascinated with the facts that weren't brought out and the investigations that were not brought out due to uh, the, the uh, effects around Malcolm X's assassination. I'm going to talk about that. And then I also looked at another Netflix documentary called The American Factory, 
that was co-produced by Michelle and Barack Obama. It's quite interesting on that. And then I think we talked before coming on that we want to talk a little bit about HBCUs yeah, and yeah. Uh, a few other things that yeah. we uh, went ahead and talked uh, talked about yeah. beforehand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so, so I'll kick this thing off since yeah. I taught history for 30 years. Yeah. And the thing that um, was fascinating to me is that, you know, as – we go into Malcolm X and as trying to teach that uh, to a predominantly group of kids that were white, I always brought out the fact that Malcolm X was not a violent person because everyone thinks that, ooh, Malcolm X was violent. Everybody hated Malcolm X because he was a violent person. Well, Malcolm X wasn't violent. Malcolm Little was a criminal. <laughs> yeah. And so there's two different things that go on. And you have to explain that to young kids growing up or my students that were high school students. And I always point out that Malcolm Little, you know, the person that he was before he went to prison. Yeah, he, he sold dope. He robbed people and so on. He goes to prison. And he's introduced to the nation of Islam while he's in prison. And once he comes out of prison, all that foolishness that he did before, he did not do, you know, as Malcolm, as Malcolm X or Malik Haz El Shabazz. And so he didn't do that. And it's amazing that the FBI, you know, was just like. Martin Luther King Jr., they did not want to have a strong black presence in the black community, period. Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., two different people, two different uh, perspectives on Americana, one growing up in the South, the other growing up in the Northeast, and both of them having two different perspectives on civil rights and black empowerment. And so, you know, uh, Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965 and they, you know, they caught one person. There were several people that was involved. One person was actually there and was responsible for shooting Malcolm X, but he, he ballistics didn't prove that he was the one that actually uh, killed Malcolm X. There were other people involved. Two individuals that the uh, police brought in and was convinced and convicted of his assassinations and is pretty sure that this documentary that they weren't involved, period. They weren't part of the, the plot or fired shots at him or anything like that, but there had to be a fall guy, some fall guys. So uh, it got into this one individual. I cannot think of his name right now. I think it was Abdul Muhammad, who was just a tour guide from in Washington, D.C., and he was fascinated with, you know, finding out who actually killed Malcolm X. And so he did his own research and went back and come to find out that there were discrepancies in the FBI report and the local police didn't really uh, give a damn. You know, they were kind of condoning the, the assassination and so on. And so it was just fascinating that the person that actually uh, killed Malcolm X was alive and well for most of that time period, and people knew this, but didn't say anything about it. Right. So that, to me, was the the big drawback or the big thing that came out of this documentary. Yeah, it was um, very well put together. <clears throat> I watched it twice. Very well put together. And uh, February the 21st, uh, coming up here soon, with, that was the day he was killed, uh, 1965, the Audubon Ballroom. 
And if you watch the, uh, you know, there there were some some things that that was in this particular documentary <clears throat> that were touched on briefly in the Spike Lee movie. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that uh, the day that he was assassinated. Uh, the police presence around the Audubon ballroom, it was lacking. Um, you know, there were so many f- red flags about that day that uh, should have tipped people off that this is not going to turn out well. You know, and uh, again, as you mentioned, for whatever reason, uh, during this time frame, uh, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, um, the country just did not want someone to galvanize the black community. And so you end up assassinating Malcolm X. Uh, Three years later, Martin Luther King is assassinated. Um, So I was just mesmerized that the the amount of information this guy was able to pick up on his own and to present. And and it's unfortunate, but a lot of this, uh, like you say, people inside the organization knew uh, that, you know, this guy's a walking dead man and they said nothing. So, uh, it, it says a lot about us as, as, as black people too, you know, that, uh, you know, we, you know, what's going on a lot of our neighborhoods now, we, we won't say anything when we see something that's going on. It's a detriment to the community, but people won't say anything. And then how do you expect things to get better in the community? When you turn a deaf ear and a deaf eye to things that are going on because you don't want to say anything. So Right, right, right. People know what what goes on and people don't say anything about it. Right. Now, here here in Indianapolis, man, I bet you there's been somebody killed every day. Wow. If you want to commit a crime and get away with it, come to Indianapolis, Indiana, because they'll never catch your ass. <laughs> I don't I don't think I, I bet you in the past 10 years, they've maybe solved uh, three or four murders. Wow. But last year, they had the highest number of murders in the city. And it topped the number of murders the year before. And this year so far, they're on the pace to have over 200 murders in the city of Indianapolis. Wow. <clears throat> and most so- of the time, those people... Those people are never brought to justice. Some are, but the majority of them aren't. And wow. so we, I think, culturally, are got this in our in our our minds to say that I'm not going to help anybody out. You know, snitches right. get stitches and all that kind of stuff. Right. And what ends up happening is that we end up hurting ourselves overall because of this attitude that. We don't we don't tell. Right. You right. know, uh, you know, it, it's like the uh, mayor and do the right things. Those right. who know don't tell and those who tell don't know. <laughs> the mayor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so a question you know, comes up. You mentioned that and you're, you know, being a history teacher. So. You have to explain or you have to teach Malcolm X to white kids. And what is what I mean, what was their impression of Malcolm X? I mean, what did I mean, did first of all, did they really know who this guy was? And if they did, what was their impression of? Was it something that they developed on their own or did they get were their parents flooding their minds with well, this guy's bad, whatever. What, what, what was the what was the dynamic there with you having to explain Malcolm X to white students? I think it was the latter. Uh, parents had explained or came across with an attitude towards him that he was an evil person. He was a bad person and so on. But in reality, that is a misconception because as a, a member of the nation of Islam, he was a he was a an outspoken critic of white society, in which in the 1960s we as black people we're supposed to be subservient, 
We're supposed to shuffle along, keep our mouths closed, don't upset the white community, and so on. And so you had a person that was literally saying that if we can't build our own, if we can't create our own independence, then we need to separate ourselves from white America. And white America wasn't used to people dogging them up. Meaning right. that they weren't used to people criticizing the white majority. Yeah. You know, when when a black person says a white man is is evil, or you can't trust the white man, uh, that goes against what they've always thought as this is the way things are. You know, <clears throat> it's the old European attitude of the white man's burden. Right. You know, it's up to the white man to civilize and socialize all the other peoples of the world. And so that attitude from Europe made its way to the United States. And so therefore, someone that says that white people are evil, they have got to be an enemy to white people because no one's ever spoken to white people that way or about white people that way. You know, and and, and Malcolm X was a little bit more aggressive than... Martin Luther King Jr. Right. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. says that we need to work together through peaceful means and uh, integrate everything. Well, Malcolm X says that we don't need to work with these people if they don't want to work with us, and we need to take power by all means necessary. Right. So right. that was different. And so with my students, you try to explain that. I try to explain that, that you had two different concepts going on at the same time. People that lived in the Northeast and people that lived in the South, two different groups of people. In the Northeast, you had a little bit more freedoms, as I would explain, because you had you know, large cities like Philadelphia, New York, Washington, D.C., and so on. It's a little bit more open. You know, Chicago's a little bit more open and so on. While in the South, you know, you cross someone the wrong way. You look at someone the wrong way. You don't step off the curb at someone. Then your life was in jeopardy simply because that's the way Southern society was. Not all Southerners, but that's the way the powers to be. And those were the people that had the voting block, the people that were your mayors, the people that were your governors, the people that were your legislatures and so on. They ran things and they didn't want to give up the power. Right, right. You know, it's kind of like today. They don't want to give up the power. Right. I, I find it strange, <clears throat> the uh, the dichotomy of it all. I find it strange in that for the most part during the 60s, during the, the civil rights era, um, we were not wanted. We were not wanted in certain spaces in this country. We, we knew that. White people did not want black folks anywhere. Other than being, like you say, subservient to them. So, you know, they did not want them to have any semblance of power, no rights, etc. However, someone comes along who preaches, hey, if you don't want us in your realm, we'll go start our own thing. We'll separate and go do our own thing. But you don't like that either, you know. And so you get rid of these people. Dr. King, who was more more along the line of preaching integration, but you get rid of people or you ostracize people like Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, uh, those individuals who were preaching, you know, hey, we can build our own. You don't want us around, but you also don't want anybody talking about, hey, let's just go over here and do our own thing. So in my view, you, you, you can't talk out of both sides of your neck, you know? Uh, yeah. And uh, so... That that just struck me as odd. You don't want us around, but at the same time, don't 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 be talking about it. don't stirring up these niggers. Yeah. You know that was the thing. Don't stir these niggers up. You know, <laughs> and uh, and so you know Malcolm X is 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 killed. You know, white America put someone up to taking out that brother. And, uh, and now then, now 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 from the documentary, Malcolm X did. He did kind of go against the uh, Elijah Muhammad. He did. And he, he did. brought out some things that, you know, that a lot of people 
didn't realize that the uh, Honorable Elijah Muhammad was a hypocrite. Yes. And so, you know, to a lot of the nation of Islam, that was uh, something that was blasphemy. Right. The other thing, this this wasn't mentioned in the um, documentary, is that CBS did a document documentary that was named "The Hate That Hate Produced," and so they did a background of what the Nation of Islam was all about. But the the documentary that CBS put out is that it just showed the negative aspects of the Nation of Islam. Right. Even, even the title, The Hate That Hate Produces. Right. Okay, right. so they're saying that this group is hateful. Right. Okay, right. and so this is the point that's going across the television airways, is that the Nation of Islam is a hateful group. Right, right. So we don't want to deal with those people. Right. The fact that Malcolm X uh, also got into it with uh, Elijah Muhammad past the uh, the Kennedy assassination, and so that was the the beginning of the split between uh, Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X, who Malcolm X was the spokesperson for the Nation of Islam, and yep. you know you know black folks, we are always jealous of one another yep we don't want somebody to get up ahead of someone else and so when malcolm x who came out of prison and became the spokesman for um the nation of islam there was a lot of jealousies that went on within the nation because of his position and so there was these rumblings going on that um People were starting to say that Malcolm is getting too big for his shoes. You know, he's stepping out on his own. And because he was the most popular, he was one of the most popular blacks in the Northeast, in the northern the northern part of the United States. Martin Luther King was the most popular in the South. So these these petty jealousies came out. And then when the Kennedy assassination uh, happened. And Malcolm X was asked, you know, what do you think about the Kennedy assassination? And uh, Malcolm X said that, hey, this is an example of the chickens coming home to roost. And then people thought that he was dissing or celebrating the death of President Kennedy. Well, no one celebrated the death of President Kennedy. He was basically saying that. America is so violent towards black people that this is the first time that that violence that has perpetrated itself, perpetrated itself on our country towards black has perpetrated itself also upon the white community with the assassination of John Kennedy. Right. And so at that point, there was a break between, uh, uh, Malcolm X and Elijah Muhammad. Right. Yeah. And and what 100% truth to what he said, um, you know, the fact that okay, you 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 don't like us. <laughs> you you do, America does not like us. But now you've turned on one of your own because one of those people is trying to help poor and disenfranchised people. You don't like that either. So you get rid of them. So that was it. That's what he was saying. But again, you know, uh, Elijah Muhammad thought that, you know, hey, uh, people and I think in more in the in the Denzel um, Denzel, um, the portrayal of Malcolm X, where Elijah Muhammad says, you know, a lot of people love this man and whatnot. And your statement uh, is along the lines of being disrespectful. And they never really did explore what exactly he meant when he said the chickens are coming home to roost. Exactly. You, you explained it perfectly. You don't like us, but now the violence has rolled up on your doorstep, and it's all because this guy is trying to stand up for the rights of minority and other disenfranchised people, and you don't like that either. So you get rid of him. So 
uh, it was it was fascinating, man. It's fascinating. Like I said, I watched it twice. I may watch it again because uh, I think Malcolm X is a fascinating character uh, in, in, in black history that doesn't get the level. I don't think Malcolm X gets the level of respect that Martin Luther King and some of the other uh, civil rights leaders of that era. I don't think he gets the same amount of respect. Uh, that he's due because of what he did and the ideals he had. Like you said, there wasn't anybody else around that time talking like he was preaching the messages that he was. And so um, I I would like to see him elevated to that same level uh, as as Dr. King was elevated to. Yeah. You got, you have passive on one side in the South, you have what's considered aggressive in the North and Northeast. Okay. So, you know, anytime that you think of, uh, someone being aggressive, you, know, you can't put up with that. And, you know, the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover yeah. and someone, they're not going to allow that to happen. Nope. It's, it's almost the same as the idea that the the Black Panther Party out in Oakland, California, when they started carrying guns, it's like, oh, my God, we can't have these black folks right. carrying guns out in public. But yet the, the governor of of California at, at the time, Ronald Reagan, uh, was able to get a law passed that says that you can't carry guns openly. Right. Right. But they said that only to black folks. Right. Now, if you try to say that today, that you can take away our guns, white folks are going to go crazy, but it was okay it was okay to take guns away from black folks back in the 60s and Black Panther Party because they were a threat, but it's not okay today. Right. Okay? So right. you right. can't take our guns away, but they were just practicing their Second Amendment rights. Right. And I've, 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 I've said and I've said it to, to my wife numerous times, I don't think the Second Amendment applies to us anyway. You know, um, I don't think it have never had because – of what you just said, if if every black person in America went and got a gun permit, this country would go crazy. This country would would come unglued. Man, oh gosh, all these. Well, well you know, you know, I, I think <laughs> I think a lot of black people do have gun permits. Yeah, yeah, they do. I have one. Yeah, my I, I sure do. Yeah, and, and and it just isn't widespread. It's something yes. that's not known, that's widely known. Right. But if that ever got out, oh man, this country would come unglued. Yeah. Come unglued. But you know the 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 desecration of the Black Panther Party again, the FBI behind that. It it was it, this country did not want to see someone or some organization galvanize the black community in the '60s. And so in order to prevent that from happening, you either systematically assassinate that entity or you find a way to assassinate them at the barrel of a gun. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, again, we've talked about this numerous times on the, on the podcast. America needs to come to grips with its hypocrisy on so many different levels. And uh, we saw a lot of that um, at the uh, during the documentary of, of Who Killed Malcolm X. If you have not seen that, highly encourage you to go check it out on Netflix. It is worth your time, worth your time. Yeah. And the other thing that the, the big thing that came out of the documentary is the fact that they knew who actually killed Malcolm X and this individual was able to relatively live a normal life. Everybody, everybody in, in Newark, New Jersey, where this guy came from a different mosque came from, knew who he was. And they actually talked about him and his role in, in killing Malcolm X, but nothing was ever done. Right. Uh, about it. And the guy that did the majority of the research for that, when he went to Newark and started asking people about, you know, do you know this person? They, they figured out his name. They got pictures of this guy after the assassination. Uh, they got him going across the screen. Yeah. And so they just said, man, leave it alone. Yeah. You know, don't bring it up. Yeah. And that's typical in the black community, man. Just leave it alone. Yeah. That was a past. But 
two people went to jail, was accused of killing him, who spent 20 years in jail, and they didn't do it. Right. This person did do it, and he didn't spend any time in jail for the killing of, of Malcolm X. And so this this individual, I can't think of his name right at the top of my head. I think his last name is Muhammad. Uh, he's going to go and confront the person that actually pulled the trigger that that killed Malcolm X. And before he was able to confront him, he dies. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's that's it, it was it was pretty good. It it was yeah. pretty gripping. Yeah, it uh, you know parallels the the along the lines of uh, who killed Biggie and Tupac. There are people who know who killed them, and and nobody's talking, and we probably will never know who who killed uh, who killed both those guys. And I'm sure you know, like you say, people know today. They know exactly who pulled the trigger, uh, but nobody's talking. So right. uh, it, it's a it's a stigma on our community uh, that uh, we won't speak the truth uh, when when it's time to speak truth. So. So, um, speaking of documentaries, um, I saw, caught a caught a documentary this weekend on Amazon Prime, and uh, it, it centered around the creation of historically black colleges, university universities. Um, the name of that documentary is "Tell Them We Are Rising." Very good. Uh, it, it starts with the history of slavery and the fact that that uh, Negroes were not allowed to read or this type of thing. And so from that oppression, uh, you know, land or slave masters, you know, gave land for black, um, you know, people to, to build uh, schools enough to educate black kids. So HBCU's university sprang from that. And so the, the documentary, it's about about an hour and 20 minutes long, uh, gets into you know, the creation, how those schools were sustained, um, a lot of good historical aspects. They also uh, compare and contrast the relationship between Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, if you're, you're a history history teacher, history buff, that relationship between those two gentlemen was not cordial. <laughs> right. And there were reasons why that was not cordial. And, and they get into some of that uh, during the documentary. But I thought it was quite interesting if, you know, for people who are not aware, because some people today say that HBCUs uh, are not needed. Now, Wayne, what's an HBCU? An HBCU is a historically black college or university. All right. Yeah, so we want to get that out there, an HBCU, historically black college or university. And so in our state, Kentucky, we've got, I think we've got two. We've got Kentucky State, and I think Berea was an all-black HBCU, correct? I think if my memory serves me correct. Uh, I know a couple of my cousins, my nephew went to K-State, historically black college there in Frankfurt, and I thought Berea. I don't know. I don't know that much about Berea. I hadn't. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, K State for sure was definitely, definitely. And uh, like I said, I had family members. Uh, a couple of my cousins went to K State, and my nephew uh, graduated from K State. Actually, works in the administration on the administration staff at K State. So, a historically black college university in our home state. So, but I thought the documentary brought out a lot of things that just was not aware that I was not aware of that a lot of the HBCUs in the early days of their creation, the presidents of those schools were white men. Right. <laughs> well, that was like, wow. And so, a lot I mean, of, who else would be in charge? You know, right. this, is, who this, else this is happens but a lot before of, or certainly after the Civil War. <laughs> right. So a lot of the, the students were like, OK, yeah, we got this opportunity. We got this school, but we wanted to reflect our ideals, what we think. We want the education to be tailored more to, you know, what we're feeling about this or that. So at some point that transition was made to where a lot of the presidents were no longer white men. They were black men and women, educators, 
that that assumed that role, which I thought like, well, I did not know that. I did yeah. not know that. And uh, the relationship between Booker T. Washington and W.B. Du Bois, uh, Booker T. Washington, you know, he, he understood the need that, you know, Negroes needed to be educated. But his view was that we need to be educated in vocational type tasks, you know, jobs that were in vocational line. Whereas W.B. Du Bois felt like, no, we need to we need to have a well-rounded education. You know, not just, you know, worry about doing things with our hands or that type of thing. We need to be able to, you know, have education that expands our minds and this type of thing. So they 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 bumped heads quite a bit. Um, and, and I thought that was good uh, for people who, who may not have known that, that two great men from our history, they didn't necessarily get along. So, yeah. Once again, it, it kind of goes back to this dichotomy between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Yes. You know, Booker T. Washington was from the South, was an yeah. ex-slave and so on. W.E.B. Du Bois grew up in the Northeast. Yeah. You know, he was Harvard educated, okay, and so on. So his his view on America and society was totally different than the view on in, in the South, in Booker T. Washington. You know, uh, the way that you get ahead in the South is that you work hard, you you know, you're tied to the land and then you do things that are going to be vocational, as you mentioned earlier, vocational. That's going to get you ahead in life. And then the education is going to come forward. Well, W.E.B. Du Bois says that we need to get our education now. We can't wait. We don't have to work with our hands. And so, you know, people in Northeast saw and the North saw that. We want equality of our education now. We want to learn all the things. We want to learn Greek. We want to learn different languages. We want to study abroad. We want to do all those things as opposed to, yeah, I want to work out there on the farm. I want to learn how to make peanut butter better or peanuts and change it around. We want to know how to work with our hands and so on. And so being a part of agriculture was part of it. And when you think about the uh, HBCUs, most of them started off as agricultural colleges. North right. Carolina INT, uh, yeah. South Carolina, um, yeah. you know, yeah. Florida A uh, and M. So yeah. we're talking about education that was based on um, crafts and trades and so on. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, it was quite fascinating. Um, Well, one of the things brought out and I did not know this either. uh, Southern University, uh, HBCU in Louisiana, uh, major riot in 1972. Uh, Two students were killed on the campus. And um, this all started because the students were protesting the uh, things that they felt that the school was not right. And they took those um, protests to the president of the college, who was a a black man. I can't, his name escapes me from the time right now, but they took it to his office. He said, okay, I I will agree. What happened? Yeah. Before that, there was a couple of students that had been arrested and were in jail. The students petitioned the president of the school to go down to the to the town and petition to get the students out of jail. Well, instead of doing that, he basically betrayed the students. The governor of the state at the time called in the National Guard and things got out of hand from there. Two students were killed. And so it was all made up the fact that the someone told the governor that these students were holding the president of the college hostage. And the president of the school wasn't even on campus, but the National Guard rolled in in, onto the campus. Um, Riot broke out. Two students were killed. And uh, I did not know that it was huge. 1972 Southern University. Yeah. yeah. Um, Now, there was there was something that happened at Jackson State also. Yeah, they they didn't mention that. Um, That that, that was, you know, the same time that. the Kent State Massacre yeah. took place, protesting the uh, war in uh, Vietnam. Right. Uh, a couple of days after that, same a similar thing happened where Jackson State two students were killed because they were also protesting, uh, protesting the war and so on. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So since, you know, before we wrap this topic up, so we both went to um, the majority type schools. I went to University of Maryland, graduated from University of Maryland. You graduated from EKU there in Richmond. So do you think do you think you're, you you do you think you would be who you were are now had you went to an HBCU versus going to Eastern Kentucky? What is what's your take on that? You know, Wayne, I don't <laughs> know because I didn't go to an HBCU. Um, I I know that at Richmond, uh, Kentucky, where Eastern Kentucky University is. We had a number of uh, black students on campus, and then a lot of the black students were in clubs and so on, fraternities and sororities. And so we didn't really, I didn't, I'm talking for myself, I didn't really feel that I missed out on um uh, that experience because I never experienced an HBCU. So I couldn't, I can't really speak on that. Mm. I know that the classes are smaller. I I know that I've had friends that go to Kentucky state and Tennessee state and Fisk and Meharry and places like that. But, um, you know, some people believe that going to HBCUs is culturally, uh, better because you are amongst your, you know, your the majority of the campus are are black students and faculty and so on. Right. Uh, seeing that we grew up in E Town and that uh, we went through an integrated school all the way through, that was wasn't any different than what I had experienced in the military. Or when I went to Eastern. So I, I can't really speak on it because I don't really know the HBCU experience. So okay. I don't think that I don't think that Eastern did anything that denied uh, black folks rights or anything on campus. I mean, we were a minority on campus, but, you know, like everything, you know, you you hang out, your friends become your friends, whether black, right. white, Hispanic, Asian, right. or whatever. And so we were just on campus. You know, most of the things at Eastern, you know, for me revolved around a fraternity because, you know, I, I joined the fraternity my first semester there. And so everything that was, was uh, done on campus evolved around that. Right. Class, class sizes were small. You know, once you got into your major, I, I don't think I had more than 10 or 12 people in a class. So that didn't really bother me. I think the general ed classes were big. I had a science class that had 200 in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a science class. Once we got past the general ed classes, all my class sizes were probably no more than 15 to 20 people at the most. Wow. Um, yeah, that's a good. That's how, a good how about you? Well, my experience was different. Like, like again, I, I part of me says, you know what? I, I would have liked to experience that. You know, I would, I'd have, I would have liked to went to a an all black school. Um, you know, just to just to you know share their experience because it's different when you're around people who look like you and and, and think like you. But I also. When I graduated, I, I went to University of Maryland, but it was their um, their Asian division, and it was mostly military students who were black, white, Asian, whatever. It was a it was a, it was a smorgasbord of people going to the school, so uh, very diverse. And uh, and again, all of you know, growing up, I always went to integrated schools. Valley View, everybody it was black, white, poor, rich, whatever. It didn't matter. Everybody went to the same school, so. But part of me just says, you know, I, I would have liked to experience it, you know, went to a Tennessee State or a Fisk or a Hampton or a Howard, something like that. Uh, but, you know, it's neither here or there. I, I don't think I'm any worse for not doing it. 
because we grew up in an integrated environment. Uh, as you mentioned, we, we both grew up in an integrated environment. So we are who we are. And uh, and we, we 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 learn things about ourselves and others from being in that environment. So, yeah. So I think it's all good. But um, this well, was I, a- I sent um, Alex his sophomore year in high school went on a a tour of HBCU yeah. uh, schools uh, that came out of Indianapolis and went to uh, several Tennessee State, Alabama State. Hurry, Fisk, um, Florida, Florida A and M, uh, Jackson State, and you know he was introduced to that. And when he decided to go to school, he he didn't go to an HBCU as well. He went to actually went to a uh, a Jesuit school in Massachusetts for college. Yeah. So I, I and he and our kids, you know, both went to an integrated schools through throughout so um yeah i i I can't speak if they wanted to do that as well so but you know for our experiences you know i think it's just how it played out right right yeah yeah it's uh it's it's an interesting documentary uh if you get a chance check it out uh one of the one of the major things that that i took away from it was that a lot of our HBCUs, they are, they are severely uh, hurting and primarily due to lack of funding. Uh, You know, that the money just isn't coming in to sustain a lot of them. And so um, the, you know, people are looking to the alumni that, that went there to, you know, support the school and for whatever reason, those funds just aren't coming in. So a lot of those schools, um, the infrastructure is crumbling, um, you know, it's sort of, it was sort of sad to see. Um, the, one of the ones they show was Morris Brown. Uh, and the place was just, oh yeah, it, it, it looked, I mean, it looked like a war zone had hit it or something, you yeah. know? Didn't they, they closed it for several years, yeah, didn't yeah. they? And then they reopened it recently, yeah. maybe? I don't know if it, re- it reopened, but this, it, it, they showed it on the documentary. I mean, the buildings were in bad shape. Yeah. Uh, graffiti all over the place, whatever. And so, um, you know, our, I, I think they still serve a purpose, you know, for, for a lot of our kids that desire to go there, uh, to have that uh, camaraderie with people that look like them, be in classroom with teachers that look like them. I think they serve a purpose to help people uh, find out who they are as, as young black men and women. So, but we got to have the funding to sustain those schools, sustain those schools. And and right now, a lot of them are suffering. Right. And the federal government's not going to spend a lot of money on HBCUs. Even, even though I know the occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania (laughs) Avenue says that he's, he's going to do something about that. Hadn't done a damn thing. He's a liar, man. It's like, really? Yeah, he yeah. is. Get out of here. Get the hell out of here. He doesn't lie. He just fudges on the truth. Yeah, he, he uses alternative facts, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, I think you have one more documentary you wanted. To yeah, this is this is the night of documentaries. I watched this one today. This was okay. called The American Factory. Okay. And it actually. I, I tell you this, the occupant at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is going to blow his top <laughs> because the one of the producers of this documentary was Michelle and Barack Obama. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Wait a minute. Time out. It gets better. Uh-oh. They won an Oscar. Oh, my God. Oh, my. So <laughs> the, the occupant, his head's going to explode. He's <laughs> got to come up with something to match or at least do something to take it away. But anyway, this is a documentary. It was really interesting in the fact that it covers a plant in Ohio that the occupant at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue during the campaign of 2016 said that we're not going to have this factory to close. And it was a a factory that made pickup trucks. I think it was a 
It was in Dayton, Ohio, and I think they made the Chevy S10. Okay. Well, they closed the factory, and thousands of people lost their job in Dayton. Some people had to go live with other people. Of course, they lost their homes and everything. Well, this Chinese factory, I think the name of it is Fuyao, decided that they were going to build a factory in the same place where this uh, GM factory once was. And so they come over and they bring uh, this factory. They start to rebuild everything uh, in this factory. So there had there's a cultural difference between the Chinese and the Americans. And it's, it's fascinating that the fact that the supervisors of this factory that they're retooling over in Dayton, Ohio, were going to be Chinese. And the laborers were going to be Americans. So eventually this, this clash between culture this is, is going to come to a head. And so they have the, the owner of the uh, factory, who is Chinese, comes to the United States. And he's saying that they're going to make all this money and so on. He's going to create jobs. And they did create jobs. But what they what he didn't say is that we're going to work you like your slaves. And these people work for GM and they were making $29 an hour to start. Wow. Well, when uh, Fuyao came in, they were reduced to $12.84 an hour. So you're talking their salary was cut to more than half. Wow. And, of course, the uh, senator from Ohio, Sherrod Brown, uh, when they opened the factory, he, he says, you know, uh, I hope that there is a chance that, you know, union workers can have some say what goes on here so that they can work on, you know, better benefits and so on. So one of the guys that was hired by the Chinese to be kind of the American liaison between the uh, owner and the factory workers, he blew a gasket. I mean, he's, you know, he's, he was going to kick Sharon Bra- Sherrod Brown's ass for even bringing up the idea of a union because, you know, for some reason – you know, the unions are evil because they take money away from, you know, profits and so on. Right. Well, they started to bring the factory in. They got it up to speed and started to make – they made auto glass, you know, for Toyota and Chevy and Subaru and different companies. Well, Americans didn't work like the Chinese, and they gave a good representation of, you know, over in China – they worked 12 hour days. I mean, they were literally like, they were like robots. They did it. Everything was precise. This, that, and the other, it was, it was all done on a clockwork and they were able to produce these glass for these automobiles. Well, you come to the United States and it's culturally different. All right. You know, over here, these guys work for eight hours and then they went home. They didn't work for 12 hours. Over in China, before they started work, they would have a little get-together, and they would sing Chinese songs, you know, that were spiritual, and, you know, we're going to work for the company, and the company, woo-hoo, and all this stuff. America was like, I'm just going to come to work. And so there was this, how can we get these Americans to produce more and be more efficient? Because and, – and this Chinese uh, factory owner said, Americans are lazy. <laughs> I mean, he said it. We're going to pay them, but they're lazy. They're not going to do what we want to do, and they're not going to be as efficient as we want them to be as efficient because they're lazy. You know, we don't go for standing in line, starting to work without a, a, a song and all that stuff, and we just move. Flow and then eventually 
they were losing money. And so in order to lose money, they said, we got to make changes. You have to work faster and you have to stop making mistakes. And the Americans over there, they couldn't. And then they started talking about, okay, you'll make us work faster. One guy said, I worked for GM for 15 years and I never had a workplace accident. I've worked for them for three months and I've already broken my foot. (laughs) And so then they start talking about having unions. And so anybody that was supportive of unions, they fired. So all the Americans were literally controlled by the Chinese and they had a big union fight and they voted down the union and anybody that was pro-union, they they ran them off or they ran them out of there if they weren't productive. Mm. You know, it's interesting that, you know, this one lady was given the task of, of uh, basically placing these windshields in a certain position. Well, prior to that, it was a two-man operation. They said, no, you're going to do it by yourself. And so she wasn't able to keep up with the quota. And so they worked her hard enough that she quit. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. You know, we're going to work you so hard that we're going to force you to quit. We're not going to fire you, but we're going to work you hard enough that you're going to quit. And wow. that's what ended up happening. Wow. Is this interesting in the fact that at the end, they show some statistics at the end. There's 2,200 people that were working there, and all of the supervisors were Chinese. All of the management was Chinese. <laughs> all the Americans who were the supervisors before, they fired them and brought in Chinese people. So it was 10 to 1 Chinese over in Dayton, Ohio, as opposed to Americans. Wow. Americans outnumbered. Chinese 10 to 1 but the supervisors were all Chinese at the end of this documentary wow yeah I mean I I did factory work you know I worked at Crucible Steel for a summer that when I uh, got out of the Coast Guard before I went to Eastern and that work at at Crucible Steel it was hard yeah it was hard I mean I worked in a heat treat factory I mean, section of the factory. And it would get up to 200, 300 degrees in the middle of the night. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because we were, we would heat, we'd have furnaces that were 3,500 degrees, and we would have to put magnets in there, heat them up. And then once the magnets was on a timer, after 30 or so minutes, we had to open a door, drag these magnets out, and then magnetize them and then move on. Man, it was hot. There was times that it was 200 degrees temperature at Crucible Steel. Wow. Yeah, factory work is no joke, man. It's no joke. Wow. They have that plant um, there in E-Town. I don't don't know. It used to be called Akabono. I don't know if it's still still that name or not, but it was a Japanese plant. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the... It was, you know, run the way Jap- Japanese run their plants, you know, in, in Japan, you know. And a lot of that culture, that Chinese culture you describe, it's they're pretty similar. It's you work hard and you work for the company. And, uh, you know, the American culture is not just it. We're not. That's not in our DNA. Oh, no. Our DNA is I'm an individual before <laughs> I am a group. Right. It's yeah, not we- Americans couldn't be kamikazes. That's not going to happen. (laughs) No, yeah, it's not in our DNA. So there was a movie that came out. I think it was in the eighties. Movie called Gun Ho. You remember that movie? Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Same thing. You know the the. I think it was Japanese. They came in and took took over this plant, and uh, you know they they did calisthenics together in the morning and did all this stuff. And the American employees were like, "What the hell is this?" You know, it's about the team. It's about the company. And that's that's not necessarily our DNA in a lot of ways. No, so, not at all. Not I'll at all. Have to check that out, man, because I, I, I'll add that to my list to watch, you know, uh, especially if the the president and the former first lady did it. I got to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> they, their production company is mentioned in there, but they don't show them anywhere. But yeah, it's called yeah, they, they want to they want an Oscar. 
Yeah, their company production company is called Higher Ground, I think. Yes. It is called Higher Ground. So I'm going to check that out, man. I'm going to check that out. Well, well, well. Good information. Three good documentaries. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to check them out, Netflix, Amazon Prime. uh, Always a lot of good stuff on there to watch. So it's Black History Month still. We got a week to go. So check out Malcolm X and uh, the, the HBCU special and since the president the first lady did this one check check out uh, the factory too so yeah the american factory the american up. factory the american factory so any uh anything else for tonight since we're getting close to that time Bedtime time for me <laughs> yeah, 10, 30 on the east coast and you're, uh, you're at 10 30 for you 8 30 for me um I, I it's good discussion tonight i think uh a lot of good information. Um, always, you know, views are pretty closely aligned with uh, the information we discussed tonight. Uh, one thing I want to throw out before we go, and it has nothing, it's totally different from anything we've talked about tonight, but uh, Pearl Harbor survivors, there was only three left from the crew of the USS Arizona. And one of those gentlemen died on Saturday, so that leaves two members of that crew. Wow. Uh, that are still living. Uh, the one guy who died is actually from Colorado Springs. Uh, his name is Donald Stratton, and uh, he passed away Saturday. And that leaves, uh, again, from the USS Arizona that was bombed on December the 7th, 1941. Two crew members are left. Uh, Mr. Lou Conter and Mr. Ken Potts are the two surviving members of the USS Arizona crew, which I thought was Wow, fascinating, especially since the one guy was from here. So, wow. Yeah, so that is, that's history. That is history. Uh, have you ever, well, you're in the Coast Guard. Did you ever get a chance to go to the Arizona Memorial? I have not. I have not. That's on my bucket list to get to Hawaii and go to the Arizona yeah. uh, Memorial. Yeah. Um, just haven't had a chance to be there yet. It is it is amazing uh, place to go visit. Um, the, um, the Arizona and you, you take a boat out to the memorial, but you watch a film beforehand, you take a boat out to the memorial. And once you get on the memorial, they've got all the names of the crew there that was, uh, that was on the, on the boat the day the attack took place. And the Arizona, you can see the, they have a, uh, part of the hull. I mean, part of the, yeah, I guess the, not the hull, but the ship, the wreckage, uh, they've got a flag um, affixed to a part of the the ship that's still visible, and it's still leaking oil to this day. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. very uh, very solemn place. Um, and the last time we were there, uh, we were standing in line to get on the the boat to go out to the uh, to the memorial, and we hear this cursing and this guy was yelling at this was like what is going on well this guy and his wife the wife was doing most of the yelling but she was yelling at this japanese family who were in line to go out to the memorial she was yelling at them and cursing at them as like you know you don't have a right to be here what are you doing here and this is your fault and i mean people were literally stunned mm-hmm. you know? And the family didn't say anything. They just, you know, they kept their heads down. But this lady was cursing them and she was yelling at them. I just, you know, I, I, everybody was like, this is embarrassing. Yeah. You know, not, not, not for the Japanese family. It's embarrassing for you that you're out here acting a fool like this. Yeah. You know? yeah. You know? I mean, so, you know, back then, everybody did their job. You know, right. I mean, the, 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 the Japanese, they, you know, they did what they thought was right. It right. was wrong, but they it thought was it was wrong, right. right. It was wrong, but they did what right. You know, and just like us, you know, we we dropped two bombs, uh, atomic bombs on on Japan. Yeah. We didn't have to. The war was literally over. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the Japanese didn't have any pilots. That we had killed them all. Right. You know, in in yeah. in sea battles and so on. Yeah. Did we have to drop those bombs? No, we didn't. But we did anyway. Did anyway. Yep. And 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 it's amazing that. You know, every now and then somebody will call America on its crap for doing that. 
But uh, we, on the other hand, we always want to, you know, throw other people's stuff in their face. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. And 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 not own up to what we've done. And so I, I think this discussion brings us back to something we talked about earlier. America needs to get real about the hypocrisy that has gone on in this country year after year after year. And uh, until we do that, uh, we're, we're going to be stuck in this in this cycle that we find ourselves and we we've been in it for a long time. But that cycle is not going to be broken. And so uh, maybe one day, I don't know, maybe it won't be in our lifetime. Maybe maybe our kids lifetime. Somebody will, uh, you know, get the courage to say, you know what? Uh, this is the real deal about America. I, I saw saw an article today, man, that uh, California was going to apologize to Japanese Americans for interning them uh, in the camps during World War II. Right, right. I and, mean, and took away all their property. And took away everything. Took away everything, man. So America needs to get real, man. I, that's we keep we keep beating that, but America needs to get real about so many things that have gone on in the fact of fabric of this country that for whatever reason we don't want to talk about them. It's uncomfortable to certain people to talk about them, and we need to move beyond that. We need to have that discussion, and we need to have it openly and honestly. And until then, um, we're we're going to be stuck. Where we where we have bound ourselves for year after year after year. So um, again, maybe not in our lifetime, but we can keep hope alive and, and hope that it happens. And uh, maybe our kids will will be the generation to have that discussion and bring it out. So we can only hope so. Keep hope alive, man. Keep hope alive. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> keep well, all right, brother. Well, I think this is a good discussion tonight. Yeah. We'll kind of move forward from here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think this is, what, the second one we've had this year, right? Second one of this year. And, yeah, uh, yeah second one for this year. And, uh, you know, going into our second year of the podcast. So, uh, you know, keep it moving. Keep it moving forward. And we'll keep bringing lively discussions and topics of interest. Again, we're just two small-town guys from small-town America. Our home is E-Town, Kentucky. So uh, we, we, we love doing this, and we hope you enjoy the discussion. So that'll do it for this week. That'll do it. All right. Well, y'all take it easy, and we'll uh, catch you on the next round. I did say y'all, didn't I? You said y'all, yeah. Y'all. <laughs> <laughs> y'all, y'all, what is what they say? Y- y'all come back now. <laughs> That one, that one slipped in. That's going back to E-Town. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we'll catch you on the next episode of Across the Tracks. All right. Peace out.